Welcome to the Self-Help Coaching Podcast, where insights, attitudes, and methods for success get illuminated. Learn what leaders and change workers have done and are doing now to create magnificent futures. We interview great guests who inspire you to overcome obstacles and achieve your goals. Be sure you visit our website at self-helpcoaching.com. While you're there, subscribe to us via your favorite network. Now, just relax as you listen. You can do something else, but be ready to make an important note. And let's get started. The title of this interview is Jason Azevedo making Made in USA a thing again. And the things we'll be talking about are quite interesting. Jason says that he has hatched the plan to give back the factories and some of his wealth to the American workers. I love that. And we'll get into it in the, in the interview, Jason, but I, I love capitalism as well. I think it has a bit of a black eye and I have some aspirations and making changes in capitalism as it is known now as well. So I think that we're going to have a lot great, a lot in common. We'll see what we can talk about, but I'm looking forward to this conversation very much. So let me tell you about Jason. Jason created his first manufacturing company with just $600 when he was only 15 years old. At this young age, he was able to establish business with some of the greatest companies in the world, such as Starbucks, Nike, Disney, Marvel, Volkswagen, Audi, Lucasfilms, the Dodgers, and NBA teams. By the time he was 20, he was already making millions in revenue. Jason is one of the most dynamic people you will meet. He owns and operates the last standing made in America, that's all caps, factories in California, no less, and has hatched, and that's something, and has hatched a plan to give back the factories and some of his wealth to the American workers. I like that. In 2009, Jason co-founded Mosaic, taking on the role of CEO. His talents are far beyond running the company with duties touching conceptual development, engineering, and deployment. Since 2009, Jason's been at the helm of growing the company year after year, acquiring several entities and creating several others to round out manufacturing efforts. His emphasis on Made in America is a driving force for how the various, company he, he's co- various companies he's co-founded operate. He also assists with business development and client strategy and is an integral part of how they operate. That is fantastic. Jason, welcome. Thank you very much for- Tony, thank you for having me. And this is a precedent because my podcast uh, certainly is about personal development and business excellence, but all of those people have been uh, abstract business people, you know, uh, you know, the only products they make are, are books or courses. You're the first person in manufacturing that I think that I've had on. So this is really, this is a great variety. Awesome. Yeah. We, th- there's, we're very much boots on the ground actually in the factories. So a lot less theoretical, a lot more, Hey, here's how, how we're doing it. That's fantastic. And, and I, man, I, I mean, I totally sympathize and empathize uh, about manufacturing in this in this country, I'm so much of, a, of what we use is imported. It's a shame. I mean, yeah, I mean, international commerce is awesome, but not at the expense of, of the domestic production. Uh, it's been, it's kind of a travesty. Yeah, it's, it, I, I think you're seeing a change in the the tides right now. And you're, there's, 
American manufacturing has always been the pinnacle of the world. And frankly, it's that that is back and and it's growing rapidly and you're watching it grow year over year and people get excited about all sorts of aspects of it. That's fantastic. Now, let me get to my first question. What does it mean to revitalize manufacturing? So if we take kind of a step back, let's imagine what you probably think of as a factory dirt floors charles dickens era throwing (laughs) oil against the wall people losing arms little children (laughs) yeah little children like tiny tim hoping to make some money like that that's the picture people have in their head there's a lot of antiquated notions that's for sure but but it's not true if you look at the, the videos from the inside of the new tesla plants these are white floored, brightly lit, gorgeous, the showrooms, basically. So re- uh, manufacturing is going through something right now, and it has been for the last five, 10 years, of that transition from kind of what the stigma was, the that, hey, it's low-wage jobs and it's dangerous and all that. Well, that's not the truth anymore. Now it, they're well-paying jobs. They're not nearly as dangerous. They're the the it's not all about just labor prices labor prices labor prices we've got automation we've got ways to help the workers so it's the revitalization is that process of getting it to where it is now and to and what we specialize in is we buy legacy american manufacturing companies that are great profitable wonderful companies with wonderful people and tons of skill and we go in and just modernize a bit and bring in better new processes, ideas, equipment, technology, and overlay that on the workers that have the skill set. And now you get this revitalized person, both within their soul and within their work, because they they are part of this next era. So uh, I'm I'm going out on a limb, basically, and I hope I, I hope I don't uh, uh, I hope it's not a mistake. But do you ever buy a company and close it down, or you, do you always just revitalize it? No, we, we do not buy companies and close them down. We only buy, we only buy good companies. There's guys out there and other PE firms that they buy ones and they 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 strip mine them, take all the clients and put them somewhere else. That's not us. Us, it's about revitalizing that company in that community and then connecting it to our national portfolio. That's fantastic. You know, it's often used today. Uh, 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 politicians typically will say, uh, I'm addressing the X community, you know, fill in your blank here, as if there is a, a national community. Communities are s- small regional areas, right? And they're and a company uh, may may have a community in, in, you know, in its adjacent areas that are it's where all its employees come from. And that's a real community, you know, in a small focal area, not this these these misconceptions or the that these terms throw around they're actually real places not these abstract ideas of groups totally and one of the first things we do when we look at buying a company and then definitely after we buy it is try to understand the community it's actually in and i'll give you an example in northern california if you ask somebody to work on friday night during high school football season unless their child plays on the team it really doesn't matter you do the same thing in rural Texas during high school football season. You you will actually you get, your, you get yourself punched in the face. <laughs> but, but, but say the person takes that shift, you can actually damage their social circle because that's when they go see all their buddies 
that they see every week at the high school football games. Right. But if you don't pay attention to the differences in these these communities, right? You, you first off, you can't run the companies because all it ends up being a dictatorship to run it, and those never run. But beyond that, you start damaging the fabric that makes each area special and individual. Right. right. There, there's a local culture in, in every place, more or less, depending on how much you scope out. And you've got to, you've got to be cognizant of that. And, and, and you have to support it more, more than anything else. Is yeah. I can't stand when people come in and go, well, I'm from this place. I'm going to impose these ideas on these people. It's like, hey, people live here because they like it. It's, we've got an Arkansas plant that, that we're trying to bring online soon. And one of the first things there is, hey, first two days of hunting season are off. You give everybody of it off because that's what that team likes to do. So really, you, you got to understand the communities that you're in. Absolutely. Now, I mentioned culture and you alluded to it. You know, uh, my company is a tech startup, Auxilium. We've, creating, we've created the world's first true self-help coach. We haven't launched yet. We've been struggling because of capitalization. So, but when, you know, I have a staff, but they're all virtual assistants. But when we start staffing out truly and have real employees and in a, in a real place and the company grows, you know, then I'll, then I'll call myself CEO until, the, until then I'm just a guy who wears 15, 20 hats. Um, and, uh, and the way I see my job is I'm going to have people much more, much smarter than me and much more competent than me in the competent than me in running a business. I will see, I see myself as the chief of culture. That's the culture that I want to create. And that's my prerogative as the founder of a company. You know, when you come across a company, you, you take into, uh, into account what's the existing culture of both the company and its community that, that's, that it supports or, or is adjacent to it. But, I, I, but that'll be my prerogative. Why? Because culture is extremely important. You know, what's the culture of a company? What's the culture of a com of community? And if you're the person that can, or, or part of a part of a group that can create that culture, fantastic. But you got to have respect for it. Yeah. Well, and especially in someone in kind of my role where I can't I can't be in every plant at all times. Culture is what creates how it runs when you're not there. Yes. That, that is that, that I, I talk to people on a regular basis. They're like, oh my culture is great. No, your people fear you. So when you walk in the building, they do what you think that they want you to do. Right. You, you really have to understand it and understand that you're never going to have the exact same culture in every, every one of your plants or every one of your buildings because there's different people in those different areas and they choose to live different lives. I, my brother and I, he, his family lives in a city. We, I live in a very rural area that, does, that is completely unincorporated. We have two very different ways that we like to live our lives. And that creates a different culture that comes out of us. So understanding that is how you can really connect and, and move forward that and then gain the trust of the people around you. Absolutely. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, as, as, as the head of culture of my, my forthcoming company, I, I, it's so important because what, the, what does an employee do when no one's looking, when, when he's not being supervised? What does he or she do? That's critical because that's the really going to be the result that you get, you know, the cumulative result. And not just that, but that's going to be paramount to the kind of people you're going to attract. You know, is it, is it the kind of culture 
that is that respects people, that uh, values them. That are I I, I want to create a company that people want to kill to be an employee for. That's my that's my that's my drive. Uh, and you know behind I mean I, I obviously I have I work off my values, but that's the environment. That's that's the the brand that I want to create. Uh, and I think that if you if you give if you respect people as opposed to groups, you know, abstract groups. And, you know, as my mentor, Rex Sykes says, you know, if you want to make a division, take a bar of butter, take a butter knife and put it and put it through any part of that, that, that bar of butter. And now you've divided it. It doesn't matter. You can make a division anywhere you want. It's, it's, so, it's practically arbitrary. So, but an individual is an individual. What are, what are those person's values? If we can, if we can find connection, commonality, then then the culture will prosper as opposed to being a conflict. Yeah, it's, it, it, that is, that's dear to our hearts. I mean, the, one of the reasons why we decided to use an ESOP when we're done with, uh, or to liquidate the private equity fund is because our culture is based on, Hey, we're building something together. And when we liquidate the fund for the investors, the employees are getting a hundred percent of it. So, Every person starts understanding this is this is going to be mine, and they tr you get people treating it different that way, and that was of huge importance to us. I want to talk. This is we're going to be talking about this now. Let's take a moment to hear from our sponsor, and we'll, and, we'll, and then we're going to continue this this uh, train of thought when we come right back with Jason Azevedo. This episode of Self Help Coaching is brought to you by Perficio perhaps the most common method that coaches worldwide use to get undisputable results for their clients is NLP. Visit www.proficio.io. That's proficio.io, where you can make the changes you want and get the results you dream of. You're listening to the Self-Help Coaching Podcast with me, your host, Tony Petrozo. We're having an excellent conversation with Jason Azevedo. We're talking about business. We're talking about community talking about manufacturing, especially in America. The, to continue along the lines where we left off, you just mentioned ESOP. Uh, yep. what, what is that? Define that first. So it, it technically stands for an employee stock ownership program. Mm. But for all intents and purposes, uh, I'll kind of explain the structure of how we work. We've got a private equity fund that goes out and buys these companies. We take all of the employees from all, from all of these companies and we have them work for, for the fund. At year five to seven, we, we estimate, we are going to take 100% of the ownership shares and transfer them to an ESOP, which for all intents and purposes means that the employees are now the owners and beneficiaries of the company. So we get our exit, we, we, we get, and the, our investors get their exit. So, uh, but, okay, let me, let me ask one thing, yep. interrupt real quick, Jason. Now, who the people who took the risk, the you know the investors uh, or the original owners, how, how do they jive with that? If, if the if the cup if the employees are all going to get all the equity, so what what happens functionally is we bring in a, a lender, usually an insurance company or somebody like that, that comes in and puts a valuation on the company. They will then buy the company on behalf of the employees. For the next five to seven, maybe 10 years, 
the employees get one use 100% profit share. So every dollar profit the company makes goes to pay that lender and it gets them the shares. So our investors get an, ins uh, get an instant liquidation. And then the, the employees with no risk to the employee, pretty much on the upside, they use 100% of the profit to buy the shares. And then one day, all of the shares are now purchased from the lender. And then the employees now just get a dividend off of the company. Out of the but it, it, yeah, yeah, and it for, but to simplify it, it largely works as a one hundred percent profit share until they've bought out the lender that came in to buy the shares on their behalf, and then it's a transfer of equity. Correct, and, and every every year during that ESOP, they the more and more of the equity shares are going directly to the employees through usually a four hundred one k or so, some some system so that it remains tax efficient for them. Wow, that that I mean, that is outstanding. I mean, uh, it's it sounds to me it's like a a great blend of uh, capitalism and communism. <laughs> well, it's it, it's truly just pure capitalism. I mean, the investors are are being very well rewarded there. The only difference is instead of taking it public, which is what most people do at the end of a PE fund, we are taking it privately public so the, the employees are getting it but it's it, it's truly a win-win as far as we see it yeah, the way i said it looks like a win-win to me i mean finances are like my weak point i actually have a bunch of weak points that's one of them uh but uh and i almost understand that but it's i, I can definitely see how it's for that i want to have profit sharing in my company as well but i'm leery about equity i can i'm willing to share profit but giving equity is another matter there's a uh, there's a distinction um <laughs> right but uh but you're talking about not just profit sharing you're talking about real equity then they the more they work for the company the more equity yeah, what what they, we're, we're talking 100 percent of the equity that that is very noble and uh i can't see what employee would not want to work for a company like that and, yeah and and all statistics, frankly, show, or most statistics show that ESOPs are genuinely more profitable because the, everyone cares more. It's now everybody's got a vested interest to work together. So for the years that we're building it and making it more profitable and growing it, it does very well from our side, too, because you, you've everybody's on the same team. And that is incredibly important. I, part of where this all comes from, my, my dad worked at a factory for 28, 29 years. And they were the worst version of a factory you've ever seen. Management and the employees were at each other's throat constantly. It was toxic. It was horrible. They'd lay people off all the time, then hire them back. And they were profitable pretty much the whole time. It was just, it was just a toxic environment. And you you began to realize, hey, maybe not, maybe people don't have to be against each other. And then we started looking digging deeper and deeper and finding out that a lot of the most profitable companies in the country, they weren't against each other. So we brought that into the manufacturing space and really have been able to kind of double down on that. Wow, that's fantastic. And so, and how long have you been doing this? So we've had the private equity fund for about a year, but I started my first manufacturing plant at 15. That was in 2007. So of course we started the first one and got hit right out of the gate with the 2008 crash. Oh. So 
really learned how to be in a hard industry during a very hard time and really how to build all that up and really just kept on looking at more companies and we, we, we built the, all the original manufacturing companies and we start them from the ground up with old equipment and get them strong and healthy. And we got into sheet metal, injection molding, t-shirts that you name it. And then we started to see opportunities that there were a lot of businesses for sale that were great companies that just needed energy put into them. So we've, we started down that path of starting to find companies that you could acquire and put energy into them and really pull them to the next, to that next level. I mean, it sounds like what you're doing is a white collar thing. Like you're, you're an investor, you're looking for companies to revitalize, but uh, I'm talking to you now. I think you're in a factory. 99% of the audience is listening, but for those who can go to YouTube, he's wearing a t-shirt. Uh, this guy is not a, uh, you know, is not an executive. It doesn't look like an exec. Uh, what's going on there? <laughs> so here's, a, here's the deal. And everyone does it their own way. Well, we own and run a private equity firm. We are not private equity guys. We're manufacturers. And we, we go into plants. There is no better way to get a culture correct, to get a plant correct, to get, all, to get things functioning correctly than to be there and to get dirty sometimes and, and to really just sit and talk to people. Yes, We're, yes we have our white collar days where they come in with a tie on because there's something going on, but that's not our typical day to day. The other day I drove from Austin, Texas to Dallas, Dallas to uh, Little Rock, Little Rock to Northern Arkansas, Northern Arkansas to Memphis, Memphis to Cocoa Beach, and then back to Dallas because we, we wanted, uh, we took our entire uh, executive team because we needed to be in the plants and going and talking to people and getting the sense and the feel of what was going on. And you just can't do that over Zoom or by looking at a spreadsheet on how a company's doing. It's just not the same. Right. You, you got you to be on, on the location. You've got to be there. Yeah. That's, you, don't, you get your hands dirty. That's fantastic. Let me get to my next question. We've mentioned community several times. Why is it important to local communities to invest in what was known as low jobs? So manufacturing has a bad stigma that they're low-end jobs, low-income low jobs. That's changed a lot in the last 15 years. Now with the onset of adding on automation and making workers more effective, they are good paying jobs. They're good paying jobs that have virtually no education entrance limits. So it's really, these are good solid jobs, but where the community side comes in is a huge chunk of what we're, what we're doing. A lot of the plants that we buy and look at are very, very significant to their local small community. So we've looked at plants that the company employs more people than the population of the headquarters that they're in. So just, just think of how important that group might be. But more importantly, the way we look at it is if I can send home somebody who works for us that has gotten paid well that day, their body does not ache like it used to. They, they feel fulfilled and they've enjoyed their time at work. They're, instead of going home, popping a beer and sitting in the lazy boy, they're going to go to dinner or they're going to go coach their kid's t-ball team, or they're going to go out in their community and they're going to add that energy and that life back to that community. And that's how you revitalize much more than just a business 
you revitalize the communities that they're in. And if you want to talk about making making our communities, our systems, and our country strong, it, like it has been, but some of that shine is going off. That's how you do it. You do it from the ground floor, and you you put out fulfilled people that go home and do the important things of hanging out with family, hanging out with friends, going to restaurants, going to go to community events. And if we can do that, the impact that we make from the investment side or from the manufacturing side is 10 times more important in the community. Wow, what a fantastic value and strategy you have. That's, that's really remarkable. That's great. Let's take a moment to hear from our sponsor and we'll come right back with Jason Azevedo. This episode of Self-Help Coaching is brought to you by Perphysio. Poor finances are the leading cause of stress, divorce, and general troubles. Financial managers, coaches, and consultants are great, but responsibility rests with you. There are new answers. Visit www.perphysio.io. That's P-E-R-F-I-C-I-O dot I-O where you can truly learn the foundational attitudes and methods of accruing wealth and staying wealthy. You're listening to the Self-Help Coaching Podcast with me, your host, Tony Petroza. We're having a fantastic conversation with Jason Azevedo. We're talking about business and manufacturing and working with communities. Now my next question, Jason, what can people do to protect these communities and help support? So there's a couple things. First, if you want to join what we're doing and look at investing in us, go to mrca.net. It has all the information of how we're going into these companies and communities and what we're doing with the dollars to take control of these companies and, and frankly, to create returns for the investors. What does MRCA stand for? It, Manufacturing Revitalization Corporation of America. Very good. It, it's a mouthful. <laughs> it's a good but one. It, mrca.net. Now, the other one is we, we got to change stigmas because we can't be holding on to these 25-year-old thoughts that the, that manufacturing is not a good industry. You can't do it in the U.S. So that is a very important thing. One of the biggest problems that we run into, and, and me included, for the last 25 years, every parent has told their, their kids, don't go to manufacturing. Don't do that. It's a bad industry. This well, I'll tell you one thing. A lot of people are making a lot of money with good, fulfilling jobs, but they can really climb the ladder in, in the manufacturing industry because a lot has changed in the last 15 years. I mean, really think about what in the world hasn't changed in 15 years. And for some reason with the manufacturing industry, a lot of people are sitting there going, oh, it's no, it's the same way it was 25, 30 years ago. And it's like, no, no, no. These are very different places. And if we can convince people to look into that, they, these are really pillars of our local communities that we need to not only protect, but just expand and grow. You know, my com I, that's, it's fantastic. It's, I love it, man, because I, I totally, I knew everything you said, you know, because that is a stigma is that manufacturer is, or at least uh, it being a lucrative or prosperous career choice is an obsolete. Uh, in, in America, and uh, and you're changing that, and it's not it's not true, and you're changing it. Uh, you know, my company is a tech startup. We, we work off an app, uh, but uh, one of part of my plan is to get into manufacturing. I mean, and for 
for a number of reasons. First of all, there's nothing like a product, like you, something you can hold in your hand, something that's real, as opposed to something on, on your phone. And, I, and we, of course, I have secret plans, which I can't tell you about. But, <laughs> but uh, the, you know, manufacturing something real, I mean, that, obviously you have a lot of pride in that. But you're saying it, you can have a, a career that's, that, is, that has a great return, that's, that it's not going to be a struggle. Uh, that's, that's truer than most people think. Yeah, it's it's a lot. So I'll take let's use real examples. I have uh, of the first four employees that ever worked for me. Uh, th- actually, I have the first five. Four still work for me from when we were 15, 16 years old. We have people that have started in the building going through that they're either janitor or they're just feeding a machine or or doing anything else have now moved up the chain in the factory and are invaluable individuals. And they are making more money than people co- graduating college are. And they're, they're doing really well. And they did it all through the system. And the, I go into plants all over the place. And you get, you get people who've barely graduated high school making over, significantly over six figures. And why? Because it's one of the few industries in the world that if someone walks in the front door, you'll hire them, train them on site, and then the more they'll give you, they'll just, you'll just keep on moving them up the chain because the, it, it's such a process-based business. It's a, te- Tech is skills-based, largely, where manufacturing is process. If you really look at how any manufacturing works, it's about people following processes it's not necessarily just skill. So it's really an opportunity for people to grow drastically by just that trial and error and that growth cycle. That's fantastic. Uh, I mean, you, you have this vision, uh, obviously this great experience, but this vision about manufacturing. And you said, I know you started, you, beca- you became an entrepreneur at 15. But what do you think you got it from? <laughs> so... It, the reality is it, it's, it's always been in me. I, I, I was talking to someone the other day and they're like, what, what's your first idea you can remember about selling something? And we were at a, so- my brother's played soccer. We're at a soccer game and I see a cornfield and I go husk a couple of things of corn. I sit down and I start selling corn in front of a cornfield. <laughs> it blew it off me. It was, and it was just, it's something that's always been in, in my soul. It, it's, I love that process of creating and building something. It, and companies are something very, very fun to build. So we, we've learned how to build them and, and how to grow them. And you add in that social aspect of, I love the people I work with. And they, they are huge parts of my life. And we're absolute opposite people. But that it, it, it's a social network. It's a growth. It's a it, it's just in me. That it, it, it is my my passion and my drive. You know, you know, America was built. America, you, can, you know, you, I mean, I I suppose uh, you can say a lot of a lot of things on how America was built, uh, but it was definitely built by manufacture. I mean, we became 
I mean, the reason why we won World War II is because, well, not the reason, not, there were several reasons, but not the least of which was our ability to manufacture. And uh, if you study history and war, like, and I'm a veteran and I study it a lot. Uh, if we weren't able to manufacture like we did, we, we, we wouldn't have not only won like we did, we wouldn't be able to supply all our allies like I did, which was critical in the victory. Uh, and of course, you know, that, that the age of manufacture, is, it's still continuing, of course, you, you got to make stuff, right? Because people need stuff, that's life and, and civilization. But you know, it's not, it's not what it was. It doesn't have, there's not nearly as much production going on, or at least domestically. Um, but what, what do you see as the, uh, obviously you got, you got your finger on the pulse of it presently, but what do you see it as the future in terms of American manufacturing? So I, I love how he said that one of the cornerstones of what built this country was manufacturing. The addition to that though, is what truly makes America a very special place is its ability to innovate its way out of problems. We, something comes up, we're gonna change our attack. We're gonna, okay, how do we come at it from this direction? And the, the beauty of, uh, of this country is that is why people come here is because of its ability to innovate its way out of problems. Which is based so, on its freedom. That's where yeah, it comes it, it's, Yeah, it, it's, it's that ability to look at things in ways different than we have in the past. So that is the future of manufacturing. It, it, let's take it back 30 years ago. 30 years ago, low-wage countries came in and said, oh, we're just going to fight you wage to wage. And frankly, it hurt American manufacturing jobs. So what, what happened in this country in the last 10, 15 years? They innovated their way out and created amazing machinery, amazing everything else that we could couple with incredibly intuitive and strong individuals as employees in the plants. And we basically made the humans drastically more powerful by innovating and adding tools to them. So that's what's coming, is the ability to keep on overlaying innovation to the ingenuity, the fortitude, the resilience of the American worker. And all of a sudden, you start getting better and better products, better and better work environments. There's no reason why an American worker should have to have a monotonous job that's really hard on their body. We can give them tools that they're using what is special about them, and that's their brain and their ability to, to come up with solutions. So that's really going to be the transition. I think you're going to see, and you are seeing it, frankly, right now, a lot more manufacturing becoming almost show, uh, showroom-esque. It's just beautiful. There, there's overlays of technology. Tesla, has, if you've seen any of these videos from their plants, these, these things are pinnacles. They're white floors and they're gorgeous. I'm, so I'm, I'm, I see, I'm like, that's a factory? I, I, you know. Exactly. <laughs> and you're going to see more and more of that because people have realized, hey, if you can get rid of that stigma, you, you really change the way you're looking at it. You can really make this a really, really cool thing. And, and, and we're seeing it right now. And it's, it's wonderful to, to just see kind of workers light back up because, it, the, hey, we've been doing it like this for 25 years. Can we try it this way? And then you, they try it a couple times. They're like, ooh, this is actually kind of fun. I, I, I'm liking this. <laughs> Great stuff. Let's take a moment to hear from our sponsor and we'll come right back with Jason Azevedo. 
This episode of Self-Help Coaching is brought to you by Perficio. Perficio learns more about you as you make progress and then uses that information to help you even more. It is quasi-AI. Visit www.perficio.io. That's P-E-R-F-I-C-I-O dot I-O, where you can be helped by something that learns more about you because that is the difference that makes the difference. You're listening to the Self-Help Coaching Podcast with me, your host, Tony Petroza, having a great conversation with Jason Nezavito. We're talking about manufacturing. Jason, how can American manufacturing keep up with other countries? So uh, there's a fallacy in, the, in that question. It isn't keeping up with other countries. It it's a, it's ahead of other countries and ah. I, I, I'm biased. Okay. So let, 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 let bias, me I, bias in what way I, I believe in American manufacturing. I spend my entire life and career working on American manufacturing. Okay. So let's put my opinion aside. Okay. Foxconn, the premier Chinese manufacturer, they make the iPhone that, that I'm pretty sure largest employer in the world has been building plants throughout the U S for the last 10 to 15 years because they've ran the numbers. They know that that's, the, that's where the trend is. That's where things are, things are going and have been going. They actually just announced in cooperation with Fisker's Motors that they will be building EV components in the United States. You've got, a, Netflix has a documentary on an auto glass manufacturer that came from China and is building in the United States. The, the reality is, the the tides have the tides have turned back and you're starting to see more and more people reshore because they're starting to run the numbers and they're starting to go wow this makes a lot of sense and it's only getting stronger and stronger as we really put the investment and the time into the, these plants into american manufacturing again and as people change that mindset we've we talked about this a couple times today is that a lot of people are operating off a 20 25 year old mindset well the, the problem is is You've already got other countries coming into the U.S. and taking control of the sector because they're looking at it going, oh, this is a very fiscally good idea to produce in the U.S. American workers are really good at working with modern technologies and modern tools. So the, it isn't a how can it keep up. It, it is the, it's the leader and it's quickly showing its leadership once again. That's fantastic. Now. What, what does it take what does it take to manufacture something it seems to me it's a very complex process with so many wheels that have to come together uh, in terms of the operation and you know the supply uh what is it you know i don't sell it's so it's up to me so manufacturing is like like being a really good cook so if you go into a really good uh, to a chef's kitchen they you you pull out any recipe and they'll make it for you. If you pull out scrambled eggs, they're going to, okay, whatever, I'll just do it. Then you, I want a souffle and I want this. And then they, that one's harder and they have to use more of their skills. That's kind of how manufacturing is. How do you manufacture something? Well, it's just a process. It's, just, it's like being a good cook. If you have that skill set, you know how to do the different aspects. It's what order do you do them in? And how do you time it and how do you pace it? But some things are very, very simple. What we're start, what the biggest transition as things reshore that's happening 
is OEMs are asking for more of the project done. So what, if you what do back, OEMs stand for? Uh, original equipment manufacturers. So think like Apple asking to have their iPhone made. They want one vendor to do as much of that as physically possible, right? Because that's less management on their side. Right. So that part of the reason why we did we're, our portfolio is national, and we do so many different types of manufacturing is so that when a client comes to us, we can go, okay, we'll, we can take 90% of the project. And there's a lot of products here that we do 100% of it, whether it's the electronics, the metal, the plastic, the assembly, the packaging. They want it as complete as possible. So that is the secret, especially if you're looking to get something manufactured. It is very hard to build the supply chain yourself if you don't understand the industry. So uh, more and more manufacturers, us included, are trying to come and have as many options internally as possible so that we can just take somebody's design and go, okay, great, I'll ship that in, in eight weeks. And that, that's really going to be the secret and the transition as things reshore a lot. Let, let, me, let me back up for a second, go back to the employees, because this is an important concern of mine. Now, we, we talked about that you said that there are actually much better wages in for a, a manufacturing employee that most people think you talked about uh esop and, and equity for the employee uh, but can people really have financial security in a, in a manufacturing career you know in the typical in the old sense of you know you stick with one company you know you'll have a pension and you'll you'll be okay most certainly it's if anything i think it's more stable than almost any other industry wow. it's the, the, and the great thing is, is as you come into a manufacturing plant, first off, the U.S. Is good, has a shortage of manufacturing workers, and it will probably for the next 10, 15 years. You've got, you will have skills that a lot of other people don't, uh, just because more and more is coming in. But beyond that, like, I'll, I'll give us as an example, and, and we designed this very specifically. We've got, as our portfolio grows, we've got plants throughout the United States. I get employees that life changes come up and I ju we just talked to one the other day. They are they, from California. Things have changed in their life. They really want to live in Texas. Well, we're like, hey, we actually have an El Paso plant uh, that should be coming online very soon. And they're like, are we allowed to move there? We're like, most certainly. We, you, you're, you're automatically hired if you want to move to one of the other plants. And that, that is a responsibility we take because, hey, if you're going to commit to us, I'm going to commit to you. And I let, let's, okay, can we, but I want to move to Arkansas. I want to move to Florida. Great. If we've got a plant nearby, we'll guarantee you a job. And now you've got that stability that even as life changes happen, you can still stay within the same company. So I, I think that's a very important thing to keep track of. Definitely. People's lives change a lot. Absolutely. Well, that is great. That is it's such a delight to hear. I'm going to ask my final question. This will be this is our last uh, final segment. This has been such a great interview. Um, but what is your process to make things more efficient? And let I me mean, tell you something. Efficiency is one of my gods. So I want to hear this. <laughs> okay. So it is going to sound overly simplified. It is. I, I, I have actually had other manufacturers laugh at me. The first thing you do is you go and clean. And I'm not talking about you, you tell people to clean up. 
the very first thing in a manufacturing plant, if you want to find efficiency, you go put a pair of jeans on. Yeah, my executive teams are required to do this. My, I don't care who you are. You go into the plant and you clean. You straighten up because every plant has an old Folgers cup. Well, that's where we keep the bolts that go to the machine that we threw away 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, so just start there. Everyone's driven their car after it got a car wash. And for some reason, it feels like it drives better. Nobody quite knows why, but it feels like it. So that alone will, that'll show you where problems are and where efficiencies are lying because you're going to find things that have piled up. Well, why'd that pile up? Because everything that's piled up is is waste. So I, I, I'm going to start talking to somebody. Hey, how come the, these metal clippings are over here? As we're in there cleaning them up. Oh, well, you know, that machine over there has problems and it, it spits out the wrong part every once in a while. So we keep the scrap part for this. And what you're going to start finding out is where the, the pain points are for people. And that is the second step. Find where the pain is because pain creates inefficiency. Yes. So, it, and then you start correcting things and you, you really, we, we get as far as all of our plants have overhead cameras and in re, uh, some of them are actually going to DVR, but the majority of them is just a camera so that we can John Madden over screens because people on the shop floor have an easier time associating stuff when it's that removed from them. So we've got all sorts of different tr- tricks, but really start with cleaning, start with talking to people and finding out where the pain is. And once you can do that, now that you find out where do you invest, where do you work on process, where do you bring in an expert in a certain space? And really it's a, it's a collaborative effort more than a, oh, this is what makes people efficient. Right. It's, it's, it's a total teamwork. There's no, there's no looking at it. There's getting into it and experiencing it and see how it yeah. really works. I mean, go buy, go buy a Ferrari and only tune seven of the cylinders. Tell it's me how efficient e- that car drives. It's not good enough? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I watch people all the time do that at business where they're like, oh, I worked on, I worked on it with this team. And you're like, okay, that's great, but wh- where's the rest of it? <laughs> right, it has to be complete. You can't, you can't go half, uh, three quarters or 90, even 90%, not even 99%. You gotta do 100%. Uh, till the till the the end, and then you'll have a no. Uh, then you'll know how it works and what has what what the pain points are and what has to be changed. Correct. Great stuff, Jason. This has been a really intriguing and refreshing conversation for me. Like I said, this is not the usual thing for this personal development, but it is a business one. And so this is right on. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Do you have any final remarks for the listeners? No, the only thing I'd say is if, if you're interested in what we're doing or investing, please go to mrca.net. There's a way to directly reach out to me on there also. I would love to talk about anything you have interest in. Great. So just the website, mrc, mrca.net. Yep. That's the best way to get a hold of us. Four letters. mrca.net. Go check it out. If you're interested in investing, business, manufacturing, Jason's the man. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on, Jason. Everyone, thank you. And remember, everyone, we're all responsible for ourselves and we can all use a little help. With that, we'll see you at the next podcast. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Self-Help Coaching Podcast, where insights, attitudes, and methods for success get illuminated. Learn what leaders and change workers have done and are doing now to create magnificent futures. Remember to visit our website at self-helpcoaching.com and enjoy even more great episodes like this one. Again, while you're here, subscribe to us via your favorite network. We look forward to seeing you next time on the Self-Help Coaching Podcast.